From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Francogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, investors mobilize for climate action in the wake of Trump's Paris decision, remanufacturing from the ground up, why companies are turning a new leaf on deforestation, and why the hottest business trends are circular. What goes around comes around this week on 350. It's June 2nd, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. And at the other end of the line is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren, or should I say hola? Hola, Joel. How's it going? Good. And uh, donde esta usted? Estoy en la ciudad de Oaxaca. I am in Mexico watching a little bit mouth agape at what is going on in the U.S. Just just got down here doing a, a Spanish program, but uh, there's been plenty to keep up on uh, in the U.S. in the, the last few hours alone. Oh, I thought uh, you were uh, leaving the country ahead of everyone else. Well, <laughs> let's get to the story, which was yesterday. We had a, a big uh, announcement uh, that uh, you may have heard about that has to do with Paris. And uh, our uh, president uh, north of the border for you. Uh, yeah, so anyway, there's that. Um, yeah. Uh, I was unable to listen to the press conference uh, that the president gave on Thursday, um, but you were able to tune into it, Lauren. What was your uh, give, give us a flavor? I actually did. Yeah, I tuned in. I watched the live stream from the Rose Garden. Um, it started with Vice President Mike Pence. Um, sort of laying out the president's economic vision. Everything was very much focused on American jobs, this reform for real Americans, a lot of nods to Pittsburgh and coal mines. Um, But when it came down to the meat of it, Trump really didn't mince words about why he moved to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Accord, which, by the way, I think there's going to be a lot of reporting still to come on sort of the the mechanics of how this actually happens. Um, Trump did also signal that he would potentially be open to renegotiating, quote, renegotiating the Paris Accord or an entirely new transaction. He said, we will see if we can make a deal. If we can't, that's fine. So not a lot of clarity, but the focus this week was definitely on um, what Trump framed as a threat to American jobs and a threat to American wealth. He repeatedly talked about redistribution to other countries like uh, China, India, the European Union all came up. So not necessarily new themes, but Joel, I know you as well have been inundated by folks sort of reacting to all of this. Yeah, it's uh, Friday and I'm still cleaning out my inbox of, of messages from yesterday around this. I w- received well over 100 uh, responses, official statements, uh, quotes, uh, backgrounders on this. And you'd expect a lot of, you know, this is a an issue of this type that everybody would be chiming in. And you'd expect to hear from the Sierra Club and Greenpeace and the League of Women Voters and Advanced Energy Economy and a lot of the the groups that are specifically around this. But the Hispanic Federation, uh, they reacted and said that uh, Trump has turned his back on an unprecedented and urgent global agreement. The Service Employees International Union, SEIU, I think the largest, uh, one of the largest unions in the United States, um, chiding President Trump and his self-interested political allies that are killing the creation of new industries and jobs that could give communities they boost. Um, Moody's uh, chimed in, um, saying that 
this is not going to stall the efforts to reduce carbon emissions, given that robust uh, uh, internet institutional and private sector momentum, including technological advances. Uh, there was a piece in the New York Times that came out within minutes of this saying uh, shareholder demands and state rules have already pushed companies to address climate change. And so despite the Paris Accord exit, companies are going to uh, expect little change. I actually thought that uh, the Wall Street Journal, you, you know, don't necessarily uh, expect them, even editorially, to be you know giving sort of the rosy scenario or silver lining on something like this. But they didn't even you know get it all right. They said that that shareholders and activists um, are and state regulations are really driving this, and so therefore the uh, Paris Agreement is isn't going to have that much impact. And, and they're right to an extent, but it's not just that. I mean, these are huge markets that are opening up, and you know, it points to GE, which has spent billions to make energy reducing consumption, energy reducing technologies, clean energy, energy efficiency measures, uh, digitalization of of energy consuming. Uh, machines. And so so a lot of this is being done, as we've, we've talked about many times before, just for all the right business reasons and over longer horizons than one congressional or presidential cycle. This is to mitigate risk. This is to uh, reduce costs. This is to, to seize new business opportunities. But most of all, it's to create some kind of business certainty. And I think that's, the, that's why companies are so uh, adamant about this and so many companies that, of the kind you wouldn't necessarily expect. So that's the big loss here. Um, there's uh, a need for companies to have some certainty and you know maybe over the four years that uh, this is supposed to take to get out of the Paris agreement that some of the, some certainty will emerge or some other things will come along to help the business community. Maybe that's just wishful thinking, but this is going to be an interesting road from here in terms of how the business community uh, responds, how strategy changes, how investments change, and what that does for all the jobs that have been being created uh, in the renewable energy sector and so many other places. It's going to be an interesting road. So more to come, lots more to come on that over the coming weeks and months and maybe even years. But for now, let's move on to the Week in Review. So in a rather timely way, we ran a couple of stories this week on investors and climate change, starting off with one by, uh, well, my co-author, Patrick Doherty, about uh, what this opportunity is presenting itself now around uh, after the presidential election and now the Paris decision uh, of, of where there's a, an opportunity for long-term investors who are sitting on trillions of dollars of, of dry powder, as the investors uh, like to say, which is cash ready to be invested, uh, how they can start to look at uh, the climate as an attractive investment area where there's better than the negative or zero coupon securities that are, that are being offered now in the, in the, in the market. Um, so it's a really interesting way to think about climate change. Agreed. I was hooked by this piece immediately just because of sort of the way it was framed as like we went on the path that not necessarily a lot of people expected with the U.S. presidential election. Um, Patrick says that had the election gone a different route, the first hundred days of uh, Clinton administration potentially could have included 
a conference to design sort of like this World War II scale mobilization to confront climate change. But instead, we're having this totally different conversation, obviously, um, what we've been talking about with the Paris Agreement. And I do think that it's important, though, how he immediately jumps to this point that while elections have consequences, um, you know, this isn't doesn't have to be a conversation killer in terms of climate finance. Um, so you think about the investors both in the U.S. and abroad sitting on literally trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars in assets under management and trillions more, um, like you said, Joel, in securities and other financial mechanisms. Um, and, it, and it is sort of like an interesting way to think about sort of uh, beyond the day to day churn of politics. And he lays out a four part plan that involved a uh, starts off with fixed income investors building the foundation of the new economy through uh, a variety of, of sort of stable and longer term um, and slightly more boring kinds of investments that are the kinds of things we need for infrastructure or uh, energy and location efficient mortgages. Then come the venture uh, capitalists and with those impact money uh, flooding in with, with new business models that are aligned to to uh, this is again stuff that we talked about in in our book last year, the new grand strategy: walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. Then we've got the equity portfolios, uh, the big institutional investors starting to rebalance their portfolios toward companies aligned with the new industrial ecosystem that that comes out of this new economy that, that Patrick describes. And, and then all everyone's starting to conform to sustainability accounting standards, such as those offered by SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or Global Reporting Initiative. It, it, you know, it's a big think plan. But the point here is that there is an opportunity here to to look at investing, but more beyond that, look at how investors can actually take the lead and drive a lot of the climate solutions, uh, and not just renewable energy, but also things like walkable communities or more sustainable agriculture and food production technologies, even faster or much faster than probably any regulatory or Paris Agreement scheme would do. And before we move off of the investment, we're like, I think it's noteworthy to bring up a story, one that we published and one that just happened this week, about investors starting to really step up on climate risk. Now, this is something, it's not a new story. Investors have been pressing publicly traded companies for a long time on this, but we're starting to see this step up, we ran a piece by Jim Coburn, a senior manager of Capital Market Systems at Siri, sort of laying this all out. But the proof of the pudding in all this was a sort of a historic vote by the shareholders of ExxonMobil on Wednesday. For the first time, a 62% majority vote in favor of a shareholder proposal calling on ExxonMobil to assess and disclose how it's preparing its business for the transition to a low-carbon future. This was hotly contested. Exxon's management did not want it. And 62%, including institutional investors with more than $5 trillion of combined assets under management, who co-filed the proposal, pushed this through. So I think that's a big step forward. Exxon is actually, in the, in the run-up to the Trump-Paris decision, actually sort of on the right side of history, encouraging the president uh, to stick by the Paris Accord, uh, and, and it's odd to say that, because given Exxon's long history here. 
But I think this was, uh, we'll, we'll see whether this was a, a quirk or the beginning of a, of a trickle or a flood of shareholder resolutions that, that do pass, that do get 51% uh, in favor of more climate disclosure, and particularly a longer-term thinking about the transition to a low-carbon future. There's another area where we've heard sort of a flurry of activity over the last couple of years, and that's when it comes to companies making new commitments on deforestation. So this week we ran a piece from our friends at Business Green in the UK titled Johnson & Johnson L'Oreal Step Up on Deforestation. So this piece was pegged to CDP, the NGO that had announced that its forest supply chain initiative has expanded now with eight new companies, including big brands like J&J and L'Oreal. Um, and the disclosure group said that these companies are aiming to work together to gather information from key suppliers. So definitely one of those uh, big supply chain issues that we've talked about in the past on the show, Joel, where you've got um, companies with disparate manufacturing and sourcing footprints. And the first step is really gathering the data. And then from there, it's figuring out how to use your leverage uh, smartly and sort of make a dent in these big overarching issues like deforestation, energy use in the supply chain, whatever it may be. Yeah, and I think it's a great story that more and more companies are stepping up, but it's also important to look back at a report that the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, issued uh, late last year saying that although progress is being made, there's still nearly a trillion dollars of corporate revenue that's tied to global deforestation. Uh, things like cattle products, soy, palm oil, and timber products. And they found that a, a substantial share of corporate income is depending on the commodities that are, are, are basically causing the problems that Johnson & Johnson, L'Oreal, and others are now reversing on. So we've got a long way to go. And, and I think that's as much as we want to praise the global palm oil industry on, on, and the efforts they're making around deforestation, this is an issue that is just really, we're just basically scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you just take a look around the world, as I mentioned with other supply chain issues, you can look at a country like Indonesia to see how different the state of play is on the ground in different countries. But I thought to sort of get at the bigger point, Dexter Galvin, who's the head of supply chain at CDP, made a good point when he said supply chains are like rows of dominoes. If unsustainable commodities enter the top of a supply chain, the effects will cascade throughout. So this is an issue important, not just to the commodities that you were talking about, Joel, like palm oil, um, but sort of the, the broader issue of how supply chains impact climate change and sort of the future of the planet much more broadly. Well, let's switch over to a different aspect of, of climate change. And that's a, a story that came out of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Uh, Andrea Brown there, who's the director of Sustainable Materials and Circular Economy on why the hottest business trends are circular. And it, it's an interesting area, and it, it, it sort of cuts both ways, that this thing called the circular economy, which is about how do you keep materials and products in play, in service, uh, endlessly uh, through a variety of measures, not just uh, recycling, but remanufacturing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, and and a number of other uh, product life extensions and, and, and other things. As much as the circular economy is increasingly coming into focus, I have to say that most companies still aren't thinking in, they're not using that term. 
they don't talk about circular economy very often. A few companies, but not many, even when they're actually engaging in activities. So I think this is going to be an interesting thing to watch is remanufacturing and demanufacturing and, and, and as Apple committed to not long ago, making products from uh, reclaimed materials. Um, is that billed as circular economy or is that just another way of doing business? It'll be interesting to see. But this is a good overview, Andrea's piece, on sort of where we're at. Right. And there were some really great numbers in here that stuck out for me. Uh, so she ties the issue of the circular economy to the broader sustainable development goals, the SDGs that, that we love to talk about, which the Business and Sustainable Development Commission indicates could be a $12 trillion business opportunity by 2030 and generate up to 380 million jobs. Um, so that report highlights that the circular economy is one of the, they, they've picked out five potentially game-changing business models to help realize that value. Um, but Accenture, the big consulting firm, also forecasts that the circular economy itself could be a $4.5 trillion opportunity. And we've written about examples from the auto industry, from all sorts of, of different businesses that are getting involved, apparel, um, so definitely an area to watch to, to see how these projections actually manifest in the long term. And a little bit later in this episode, we will have uh, an interview I did with Marcy McClanahan, who's the plant manager of Ingersoll Rand's remanufacturing operation in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, again, this is something that they've been doing since I think the, the 80s or 90s. So it's not a new thing. And it's one of these activities that is being now saying, well, this is part of the circular economy, and it absolutely is. It's, a, it's not being done as, as part of the new trend. It's just good business that now is coming increasingly into vogue. So more of that to come in just a few minutes. Let's switch gears and talk energy. Utility companies around the world are enduring and catalyzing a massive business model disruption brought about in large part by the adoption of clean power in the rise of digital technologies that make for a smarter electric grid. Uh, while concerns about each region and market are unique, there are common themes emerging, such as a move away from huge capital investments in massive new power plants and a much sharper interest in the concerns of commercial and retail customers. Greenbiz editorial director Heather Clancy recently spoke with high-ranking executives from Italian power giant Enel and Australian energy company AGL, both of which are placing big bets on the low-carbon future. Heather, welcome to Greenbiz 350. Can you tell us a little bit about what's interesting regarding these two companies? Thanks, Lauren. Great to be on this week's podcast. Let's start with Enel, which may be more familiar to our U.S. listeners. The company is roughly 50 years old and it serves more than 61 million customers in 30 countries. Enel has made a rather bold commitment to being carbon neutral by 2050. That means big changes for how it invests in new and existing power plants. AGL is one of Australia's oldest companies. It actually was the entrepreneur that turned on the first gas lamp in Sydney back in 1841. So it has a very long history of innovation. And AGL is behind what is being billed as the world's largest residential virtual power plant, connecting more than 1,000 batteries in homes and businesses in South Australia. Both companies are spending far more time these days thinking about what their customers want 
and how to deliver on that. Here's an L CEO, Francesco Sparaccia, on where the industry has stumbled the most over the past 20 years. The, there are basically two major mistakes that this industry has made over and over again over in, in, in the past two decades. One being build huge plants that take years and years to, com to be completed. Uh, when I say years and years, I, may, I mean more than three years. Uh, and second, build generating plants without a visibility of uh, whom to sell the energy to, at what price, for how long. And we said, we think this is one of the worst possible times to continue to do this kind of mistake. Because as for the first thing, the long time to finish a plant, technology is today evolving so fast and continuously in a way that by the time you've started uh, your coal plant or big hydro plant or big nuclear plant, and by the time you're finished, years after, the world is substantially different than the one you were when you started. And in many ways, that installation has already, let's say, has already became old even before being born. So it's, it's in a way against the, the times. So we said, let's stop making this mistake. Let's stop making decision, few big decisions about big plants. And then let's also not build any more generating facility if we don't have a visibility of who are we selling the energy to. We, what is the, the contractual lifetime of our uh, forward curve or forward uh, production? The implication of these two no's uh, is that Either you don't grow anymore, or you embark in a different type of growth, which is composed of many more smaller decisions at a faster pace. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've read a little bit about the Australian energy market, and it sounds like the customer churn there is, is pretty high when it comes to how, how energy companies are having to adapt. One out of every five changing providers every year. So how does a company like AGL respond to that? Yeah, Lauren, it was pretty fascinating. I actually was not used to talking about net promoter scores and like customer satisfaction with a utility company. It's, it's a little, little odd, but actually I thought, wow, you know, these companies are starting to listen. Energy companies are starting to listen to their customers. And Andrew Vesey, who is the U.S. raised CEO of AGL Energy, he believes that digital technology will play a big role in recasting what he calls the, quote, value constellation, end quote, in Australia power markets. The company's big virtual power plant experiment plays right into that. And here is Vesey talking about how the project impacts each participant in the value chain. So where's the value created? It's, it's created for the owner of the asset, which is in this case residential owners, because they get a greater utilization of their battery in their rooftop. They get more value and it's optimized to how much you know, they're selling in versus buying from the grid. Uh, we've run those numbers. There's value to me as a, in my trading desk, because I have another risk management tool, I have that peaking plant that I can play with in my risk management schemes. There's value to the distributor who can defer investments in the grid. There's value to the transmission network because they'll have less frequency events. To make this work, you need for those regulated pieces 
to be able to see and assign the value, right? Because we're creating all this value. Somebody has to allocate it, okay? And that's the whole point, to make sure everybody's got skin in the game so that there's public policy and regulation that allows this to happen, that it becomes part of what's planned for, because everybody can see and identify the value. You know, and that's why, you know, we, we have a real issue when a distribution company says, let us rate base. Well, yeah, well, where's the value? Where's the value that everybody's supposed to get in this if you're just going to say it's a rate-based asset and it's going to defer some, some capital? So what we want to do is we, what we've done is we've created at the state level uh, through the offices of the state government in South Australia sort of a, a steering committee that has consumer advocates, the owners of the network, uh, policymakers, regulators who will watch this thing evolve and hopefully we'll sort some of these issues out so we have the right framework. So I guess you could compare that to the U.S. where commercial accounts have become a major force in the clean energy movement. What's happening sort of at, at the higher level in Europe and Australia? So, yeah, I mean, the U.S. utility companies are starting to listen more to commercial and corporate accounts. Um, and it's it's interesting. There, there is activity in the other markets. I spoke with both Staracha and Vetsi about this issue. And the, the quote, what they call industrial buyers are absolutely far more active in both places. Now, the regulatory framework in Europe doesn't really support the same sort of long-term power purchase agreements that we're seeing in deregulated markets in the United States, but activity of this sort is picking up in Australia. Here is AJL's Andy Vesey talking about corporate interest in solar energy. The fastest growing area for photovoltaic installation is now the large commercial. And you see a number of firms um, that are, are keenly uh, interested in finding a retailer that will provide that. So we do 10-year PPAs on solar rooftops. We did one that was just over a megawatt, which was quite large for what they would call, we'd call a vineyard, they call wineries, all right? Um, but you see that as a grow, anybody who has a big roof uh, wants to do it, and it's mostly motivated by getting some control over very high energy prices right. as opposed to purely being motivated by green. But then you have other large companies, and a lot of them are multinationals, who do have commitments look for that as well. What we haven't seen yet is we haven't seen the banding together. I mean, I think it would be a good idea, we just haven't seen it. it what's very interesting in Australia is that there's been a shift in the political narrative. Now, I don't say that that's, we're giving license because of the shift in the narrative here. I think there is for other reasons, but what you're finding, even in very aggressive state governments that have set very aggressive renewable goals, is that the conversation is no longer about renewables or carbon, it's about reliability and security. It should be intriguing to see what role PPAs play around the world, but Heather, are there any final takeaways to share here? Yeah, um, the other thing that really struck me was how critical information technology, including the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence, will be in enabling the clean energy revolution. You may have heard that Enel, for example, is working with clean tech startups in Israel and Silicon Valley, and it will add research facilities in Europe and Asia in the near future. Now, this isn't your typical corporate venture capital relationship. Enel is looking for technologies that solve really specific problems, right? So a great example is a project from Israel that uses an audio sensor and software-generated alarms to detect when a pump in a power plant is nearing failure. So there's like a signal, apparently, that human ears can't hear that um, these pumps send. And this, this little gadget that they created picks up the signals. Um, it's very simple. 
um, but profoundly important for improving reliability of existing plants and keeping them running safely and reliably and smoothly during the transition. So Enel's Francesco Sparaccia believes advances like this will be crucial as the power system transitions to renewable energy over the next several decades. Here is his view on the role innovation will play in advancing clean power. Overall, we think that this, the combination of these two issues, one, the pervasive digitization that we, we observe in all industries, and the second is the improvement in material science. So that's what really is pushing uh, renewables to be cheap, you know, because material science is really improving the objects with which we generate energy. These two trends will make electricity extremely pervasive in many parts of our life where today is partly present, partly not present. So we'll have a lot more in energy, electricity in transportation. We're going to have a lot more electricity in heating. We're going to have a lot more electricity in cooking in all kinds of things that today are perhaps areas where hydrocarbons or, uh, or fossil fuels are used. So that's for us really a big revolution because we think you can decarbonize electricity, you cannot decarbonize what was born out of carbon. So I, we think this is, this is a big hope for, for climate change going forward. All right. Well, editorial director Heather Clancy, thank you so much for the dispatch and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. Take care. During our podcast over the month of May, I've been talking and reporting from different cities around the country. And that's, as I've said, uh, part of uh, our annual Green Biz Executive Membership meetings for May. We have three meetings each in January, May, and September. They're really interesting conversations where we bring 20 to 25 companies together for uh, two half days and a dinner and uh, some fun stuff in between to talk about what's going on, some of their trials and triumphs and questions and answers about things. And with this month's meeting that's over, I thought I'd uh, bring in Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies, who runs the Executive Network, to talk about what went on at this month's meetings. Um, John? Thanks, Joel. Well, one of the things we started each of our meetings with uh, over the last month was to ask members what the top three things that they were working on. And not really a surprise, no, no big ahas or new things that we hadn't heard before, but a lot of discussion around communicating sustainability, whether it be through reporting or internal, external communications. And then the other two that round up the top three were a focus on zero waste, well, a lot on food waste, but also on recycling, composting, end of life. And then a big focus on supply chain, decarbonization, uh, science-based targets for supply chain, responsible sourcing. Those are really the top three things that we discussed. Uh, of those, as you said, some of that's not surprising, although I would say that the zero waste, zero food waste, uh, energy waste, uh, recycling, all that, rising up to, to the second most, uh, or actually almost tied, just in terms of pure number of companies talking about it, uh, I think that's an improvement. But let's go to the number one, uh, sustainable sustainability communications. Um, that's been a per perennial uh, topic. We've been talking about that for well, pretty much ever. Why do you think 
companies still grapple with talking about that. And by the way, who are they talking about this to? Is this internal or external or both? It's really both, Joel. And I have to say, in all of our conversations, this was a big theme through all the meetings. And and really, there were a lot more questions than answers when it came to the right way to communicate. I think people have learned to uh, speak in the language of business. They're getting better at that. But I think there were more conversations around how do you do effective communications in the era of fake news and self-selected science. And there was also a lot of focus on how do you communicate about policy issues and uncomfortable topics that, you know, in the past haven't been uh, top of mind for a lot of companies. Well, that's certainly understandable, given that all that's going on at the national level and really at the global level and and locally, of course, on energy policy and so many other issues, climate change, toxics, water, and everything else. One of the topics that came up that was interesting to me is how do you communicate sustainability to your own internal comms department? That still seems to be a challenge. It is. And in fact, a number of our members pointed out that that was the biggest challenge in terms of communicating because they're they're walking that tightrope of having facts and and stories that are impactful. And then the comms team wanting something more glitzy and and uh, jargony that, you know, the sustainability people sort of coil back from. Another theme that came up uh, sort of right behind the top three were just Things about goals. Uh, how do you uh, revise or update your sustainability goals? Uh, a bunch of companies that are uh, now uh, engaging in science-based targets and, and what it takes to do that. And then communicating, once again, back to communication to their customers about these goals and, and just sort of getting everybody on board. Do there seem to be more goals now, or is it just that the goals are coalescing around a few different frameworks? Or why are we hearing more about goals, John? Well, I I think this is also one of those perennial topics, uh, you know, as people may set audacious long-term goals, but they have to have incremental goals to reach those. Um, We're seeing a lot more around science-based or or more maybe appropriately context-based goal setting. But I think the the big thing that we heard more about this, this time around is the focus on helping customers reach their sustainability goals. And this is both for for B2B as well as business to consumer companies, B2C, whether it's energy efficiency of products or the healthfulness of of food products in the ag sector. So I think that focus on on promoting uh, and and establishing goals for their customers and helping them reach their goals is is a fairly new thing. And through all that, I guess one of the other things that we're seeing uh, is just uh, a relentlessness that companies have around continuing their sustainability goals and objectives uh, in spite of the, the regulatory uncertainty, in spite of the, the, the policy changes, in spite of all the controversials and just you know wishy-washiness going on at the national and at some state levels or backtracking in some cases. I think that's good news. Does it feel that this momentum continues, John? I think so. There's no there's no indication that people are backing away from their commitments. And that's mainly because most of them are based upon sound business practices. It's not it's not for greenwashing, it's not for getting your name in the press. It's it's really around making your business more efficient and resilient. 
which is to say for all the right reasons. Thanks, John. Uh, that's the report from the uh, May meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network. We'll have you back in the studio in September after we do the next round. John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joel. As I mentioned last week, we held our Green Biz Executive Network meeting in Davidson, North Carolina. That's the home of Ingersoll Rand, which, among other things, makes compressors and motors for HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning equipment that you find in large buildings, things like office buildings, hospital schools, government buildings, places like that. And one part of their operation involves remanufacturing. It's just like it sounds. You're taking something, in this case, a very large, heavy, and expensive compressor unit that's probably been in service for 30, 40, or maybe even 50 years. You're tearing it down to its component parts and rebuilding it piece by piece so that, in the end, it performs just as well as a new unit. Anything that can't be saved is recycled, and this one facility is recycling about 130 tons of material every month. Remanufacturing has been around a long time. Companies like Ingersoll Rand and Cummins Engine and Caterpillar have been doing this for decades. But now, in the era of the circular economy, which is about keeping products and materials in circulation, remanufacturing has kind of a new green sheen. So while we were in North Carolina, we got a tour of Ingersoll's remanufacturing operation in Charlotte, where the company remanufactures compressors and motors, about 13000 a year. It's pretty impressive operation, a vast facility, uh, many football fields large, if that's the unit of measure. And our tour involved walking us through every stage of the process. So after the tour, I chatted with the plant manager, Marcy McClanahan, about the company's manufacturing operation. Here's our conversation. So Marcy, first of all, just tell me what's going on inside the plant here. So we're a remanufacturing facility, and uh, many people are not familiar with remanufacturing like they are with manufacturing. It's very similar with one big change, and that's the fact that we're taking old equipment, we're bringing it in-house, we're disassembling it, we're cleaning the parts, we're taking all of the parts that we can and putting them back into a remanufactured compressor or motor. So what we do is um, we, we measure, we clean. So once we've taken the parts and we've cleaned them, then oftentimes they'll have to have a little bit more work done on them. We have a machine shop in-house, so we do lapping, we do honing, we do boring. But anyway, we get them back to the um, remanufacturing OEM spec. So you're taking an old uh, compressor from a commercial air conditioning system, breaking it down to every part, down to the screw, down to the flange, down to the gasket, and cleaning everything as it looks like it's new. Is, is this going to go back to the same place it came from? Is that who this is for, or do these just go on the open market? That's exactly right. So it's going back typically to the place that it came from when you're talking about Centervac motors. When you're talking about compressors, they're more of an off-the-shelf item. So when you um, take an old compressor out of your unit and need a new one, you're not typically going to request that we give you that exact same compressor back. So we'll send you a compressor that's been remanufactured previously, and you'll use that as a substitute for the one that failed in your current chiller. One of the things that struck me being on the floor is that the men and women who are working there, some of them have been on the line for uh, 15, 18 years. I think the average in one line was like 18 years, uh, which means that this is, this is skilled work. This is not just, uh, you know, uh, brute force at all. Uh, why is it takes so much skill to take apart and put back together a compressor? 
when you, as you were walking on the floor, you probably noticed that there is a wide variety of product that we make. So we're kind of small volume, but huge variety. So there's um, a lot of tribal knowledge that we've gained over the years. Every compressor that you make is going to have a slight difference because of the remanufacturing aspect. And over the years, you learn how to make sure that you're getting quality parts to your customers. All of that is not captured on method sheets because there is such a huge amount of information. So yeah, there's a lot of skill involved in it. The other thing that you saw as you were out there was things like motor winding. Well, we hand wind motors. That's a lost art. And I always say that's a combination of manufacturing and artistry with the motors. It's, uh, it takes a long time to learn. We're teaching a young guy right now. You probably met him when you were out on the floor. And he's about six months into his apprenticeship. And he's getting pretty good, but he's probably got another six months to go before we feel like he'll be ready to, to work on his own. So this is a wrapping copper wire, many, many strands of copper wire around uh, an armature, around, uh, uh, I'm not sure the terminology, but, uh, uh, and this is to create a motor. And this is for a new train uh, air compressor. Is this done by machine? Or is this different than how it's done for a new product? Yeah, the newer technology is machine-wound, and ours is hand-wound. The difference being machine-wound, you're doing high volume of the same um, stator that you're winding. Um, for ours, as you see, we do one at a time, basically, and so it's not economically feasible to do machine-winding on that many different kinds at such a low volume. Why is, is train in this business in the first place? I mean, it's not for, for ecological reasons, although they're certainly uh, you're part of this. Really, the circular economy is, is product life extension, and that certainly fits into that. But that's not – this is a business, right? It's definitely a business. So um, remanufactured product you can get at, at a very good price point. So when it originally started up – you had two options. You could buy a remanufactured compressor, and that's what we primarily did when we started up was compressors. But you could buy a remanufactured compressor from somebody external, or you could buy a new one. And the cost difference was significant. And so the um, train group that started up the remanufacturing business said there's, there's money to be made, but also we can supply our own customers a much better product at much less of a cost point. And I imagine that in the process, you're keeping them in the train family, so they're going to want to buy, if they, to the extent they need additional product, they're going to want to buy them from you as well. Absolutely. That's always the goal. I have to say that going through this and, and, and talking to a number of your uh, the team members on the floor and, and, and hearing you talk to, to the group, uh, our group here today, Marcy, it seems like you're, like you're having fun. I tell you, it is a lot of fun. I always uh, laugh and tell everybody that uh, the remanufacturing facility, we're a pretty small group. We're a very close-knit group. We have tons of experience together. And our primary goal is to have a whole lot of fun yeah. and do make good product while we're doing it. But you spend most of your life at work or asleep, so we want to have fun while we're here. What a great way to do that. Um, Marcy McClanahan, the plant manager for the Train Charlotte uh, Remanufacturing Facility. Thanks so much. Thanks to you. I enjoyed it. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to get your comments, story ideas, and other things. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.